MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, Allison Gill, and this is episode two of the eight-part series on the book by Colonel Alexander Vindman called Here, Right Matters. Today, I'll be covering two chapters, chapter three called Late Bloomer and chapter four called Right Where I Want to Be. This is pages 33 to 68 in the book. So grab your copy or get the audiobook and support the author and his family, who are simply lovely people and who I consider friends. So let's support them. Also, thanks to patrons, all of you, the patrons of my shows. Patrons, you get these episodes ad-free, as well as ad-free episodes of Muller She Wrote and the Daily Beans podcasts. Your support makes these series possible by helping us pay wages, really good ones, and offering benefits to our team members and producing these episodes. So thank you so much to our patrons. You are my chosen family. All right, let's kick this off with chat. Chapter 3, Late Bloomer, which opens with a description of Alex's early life in Brooklyn, uh, complete with a description of the bustling streets of uh, Brooklyn, men playing chess and dominoes, women out shopping, pushing carts, kids, including uh, Huge, which is uh, Eugene, that's um, Alex's brother, Huge and Alex playing in open fire hydrants. Um, which they called urban water parks, <laughs> despite Brooklyn in the 70s and early 80s being very different from the hip and chic place it is today. Alex and his brother still felt pretty safe. There was a high crime rate, but they still felt pretty safe growing up there. The neighborhood was diverse. And as immigrants, they there really wasn't anything stand out about them. Uh, but they were considered new immigrants from the successive waves of more recent arrivals from places like the Caribbean and China. But having immigrated from the Soviet Union in the 80s, the Vindmans had a very particular experience, as you can imagine, and that shifting relationship between the Soviets and the U.S. would come into play for Alex later in his life, not only by making him an expert as an attache to Mos Moscow, but uh, personally uh, in, a, in a conflict he had with his dad over testifying against Trump. Uh, Alex talks here about learning English by mostly watching television and his cousins that would live there sometimes and visit, he would learn the curse words from them. It's very important. It's something you always learn when you learn a new language, you learn the curse words first. Um, they, he talks about how they lived in a cramped apartment in Brighton, just his brothers and his dad, Eugene, Len, and his dad. They watched TV a lot while their dad was working long hours. They were huge sci-fi nerds, Battlestar Galactica, Star Trek, woot woot. And his, his, yeah, his dad was working really long hours and it be, because his degrees and his experience as a civil engineer in Russia carried no weight, or I should say in Ukraine, Soviet Union carried no weight in the United States. He got a job with manual labor, labor, heavy lifting, furniture. And his boss, 
who was a Russian immigrant that only arrived a couple of years ahead of them, would take a cut out of his wages in exchange for cashing his paycheck, which Alex says was a classic scam back then. And he says, quote, I never understood how someone who lived so recently through his own hard transition to the United States would want to prey on his fellow immigrants and countrymen. Uh, but that first job uh, lifting furniture was like it was the first step in a large plan, a larger plan for the elder Vindman. Step one was to get immediate income. And that's what that moving job was about. That's the furniture job. Step two was to pass the civil service exam. Now, meanwhile, Alex's grandmother qualified for Section 8 and some social welfare income. So she had her own apartment. And Alex says that for multi-generational immigrant families like his, social welfare was really critical. Uh, it provided the home for his grandma so she could watch the kids while their dad worked those long hours. He says that while a lot of people look down on social welfare programs, the assistance available from the United States and New York at the time helped so many get on their feet and allowed them to progress towards self-sufficiency and the betterment of the family, also known as the American dream. And speaking of their grandmother watching them, she did watch them like eye on them uh, because apparently uh, they, while the twins, Eugene and Alex were inseparable, they were also troublemakers. <laughs> They didn't do well with authority. Uh, by 1979, Brighton Beach was populated heavily by recent Russian and Ukrainian Jews. And throughout the 80s, the neighborhood would see what Alex describes as an explosion of Russian stores and restaurants, with Cyrillic lettering and all that. And I love this next part, and I encourage you to read it on your own. It's about Huge and Alex running around the city parkour style. They had like these obstacle courses all planned out, and they had names for them. Uh, and they would be getting into trouble. They'd hide under the boardwalk and stuff. And they would also get injured quite a bit. He talks about how in the 70s, nothing was padded. Everything was dangerous. I'm sure uh, folks my age, we've talked about this all the time. You know, those everything on the playground was metal. Uh, and at one point, Alex fell off a swing and like really smashed his wrist into the concrete because we had our swing sets on concrete. Uh, but because he didn't bellow out or cry or anything, his dad told him to walk it off. Typical dad thing, right? Till about 45 minutes later, when his dad realized how badly he was actually hurt, a later x-ray would reveal he'd actually broken his wrist. So the brothers would hang out on the boardwalk, get in all kinds of trouble, uh, get any number of injuries in the process. But he said those weren't wasted days. He discovered his independence and freedom during those times and how to overcome obstacles, injuries, and frustrations. And he learned how important close family connections are and how he and Eugene were a team in both exploring and defying authority. And then Alex talks about his older brother, Len, seven years their senior, uh, kind of like a surrogate father. He was able to keep the two younger brothers in line and not because he was intimidating or whatever, but because the, the you know, Eugene and Alex really looked up to him. Uh, they wanted to make him happy and proud. Uh, and he would, he was the, he calls him the keeper of the fun because he would take him to places like Six Flags and Floyd Bennett Field. And he also gave deference um, in this chapter, Alex does, to his grandmother who had lost both her son and daughter and now was living in a far away, unfamiliar place with her son-in-law who didn't get along with her very well. But she absolutely loved the boys and did everything to take care of them. Uh, she died in 1987 of lung cancer. And he says, it's hard now to imagine how anything good in my life in the United States with all of its challenges and successes could have taken place without her toughness and courage. I suspect that many immigrants to the U.S. and many people born here have had similar figures in their lives. 
Alex and Eugene picked up English quickly and easily and could speak it before kindergarten. Uh, But their dad had a rougher time. Adults usually have a tougher time learning new languages. But he had picked up enough in six months at his hard labor job to take and pass the civil service exam. Six months. And he immediately sought work in his old field of civil engineering, what he was doing um, back in the Soviet Union. And he got a job as a junior engineer, despite the fact that he's like a senior engineer. Uh, But he got this junior engineer job at the Department of Environmental Protection, uh, working on the decades-long multi-billion dollar mega project to replace and repair the centuries-old New York City water supply. And he would stay there until he retired. And he worked, that's when he started working, especially long hours. And in 1982... Alex got a mother. He was seven, and he has no memory of his birth mother, but this woman would become the person he would call his mom. And soon after, the Russianness of Brighton had become a problem for their dad, so they decided it was time to move. He says one might wonder why Jewish Soviet emigres would have, um, would, wouldn't have settled in, content, surrounded by a community full of people just like them. But that wasn't the Vindmans, he says. Brighton was, quote, static, stubbornly Russian, resisting assimilation into the larger American culture, or at least not assimilating quickly enough for my dad, unquote. So they moved to Borough Park, still in Brooklyn, uh, a couple of, uh, he says, a couple of subway stops, uh, but also a world away. The neighborhoods changed so dramatically. And that's when Alex learned another lesson from his father. Don't just start over. Keep starting over. And he says, as he writes this, he is still trying to learn that lesson. They lived in Borough Park for 10 years. And as they grew up, they started channeling their boundless energy, the boys did, into sports. And he also developed a desire and a need to stand up for himself. And uh, these stories of early life, adaptability, starting over, standing up for yourself, the importance of family, these are all foundational for what would come later in his life, right? This is what I'm picking up from this, what he's putting down in these early chapters. He tells a story uh, of learning how to stand up for himself at PS 105. Uh, He went to public school 105, and then he went to the John J. Pershing Intermediate School and then FDR High. And early on, when he and Eugene were eight or so, They had a run-in with a stereotypical bully. Uh, The kids singled them out and picked on them constantly for years. And by the fifth grade, Alex had had enough. At one point, the bully provoked him, and instead of just taking it like he always did, he rushed him, knocked him down, pummeled him, until a teacher came in from another classroom to break it up. And Alex got off the hook, probably because everyone knew this kid was a bully. So the teacher gave Alex a pass, and the bully was expelled, never to be seen again. That kid bullied a lot of people. And so that kind of made Alex and Huge heroes, which sort of set them up pretty well to be, you know, popular in high school. Not super popular, but they said they could float around all of the different, you know, groups and, and cliques. Well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Sorry, I had to. Anyhow, the two got along with all the different crowds, which would later prove to be an invaluable um, thing for for Alex in the army, right? Because it's such a diverse thing, the army. Uh, And I I really related to this part of the book, too. I wasn't very popular in high school, but I was able to get along with all the different cliques and groups, right? Um, And that helped me, that benefited me greatly in the Navy. Now, he wraps up this chapter with another lesson that he had to learn, which was literally 
how to learn. <laughs> so he was in advanced classes. That was the norm in the Vindman family. And Alex's twin brother usually was, uh, we actually, what happened was he ended up getting promoted to the next grade. So they didn't get to finish school in the same year. He, he graduated a year ahead of him. And he always told Eugene that his later successes all stem from a profound need to right that terrible wrong <laughs> from childhood. Um, and uh, he, he, he says here that there was really no guilt uh, on behalf of his brother for that. <laughs> um, but Len was this totally different thing. He was an absolute ace student, totally, totally ace. Uh, and he would end up at Dartmouth, right? And Huge got accepted to the State University of New York. And Alex got a full ride to American University in D.C., um, by the time he arrived there, he was already being drawn to the military, which he said was Len's influence. Len had joined ROTC at Dartmouth seven years earlier. And when they ended their ROTC program, Len entered basic training. And while everything Len was doing as an army reservist with the 11th Special Forces Group, um, there, while that was happening, there was a thoughtful aspect to it, right? There, it wasn't just all the cool special ops stuff. There was an ethos of service to the United States. He had instilled in Alex and Huge the idea that they had an obligation to pay back the country that had taken them in. And when I read this, I immediately thought of Merrick Garland's comments to the Senate during confirmation, the attorney general, and how he choked up when he talked about his family escaping anti-Semitic persecution and how he was obligated and felt obligated to pay back the United States for taking them in. And both Eugene and Alex joined ROTC, and Alex had focused so much on that aspect that his grades suffered, and he was dismissed from American University after just three semesters. He took six months off, got a job as a computer tech, got an apartment, but he really wanted to be an army officer. So he applied to the school Eugene was already going to, and he was accepted, and uh, he gave it another shot. He had only planned to serve, by the way, just a stint, just one tour as an army officer, and he didn't want to, he wasn't planning on embarking on a lifelong military career, but he had not yet found his passion, right? You know how kind of we all were like beginning a college, just sort of floating around trying different majors. And he says, quote, the Vindman boys, late bloomers, no question. Once we get going, though, we don't look back. <laughs> so I love that. Uh, we'll be right back with chapter four. It's called Right Where I Want to Be. We're just going to take a quick break. If you want to get these episodes ad-free, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash MullerSheWrote. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's AG. 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. And if you're among them, know you're not alone. There's a solution you can trust to deliver results. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol. And with many users raving that the supplement not only transformed their hair, but restored their confidence too. Nutrafol is 100% drug-free. It uses medical-grade botanicals in consistently effective dosages so you get the most reliable results. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the five root causes of thinning, which are stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. Nutrafol offers two targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding through all stages of life. Healthier hair growth takes time, so you'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair in three to six months with Nutrafol. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. I love Nutrafol. It's working for me. And if you want healthier, thicker hair, I definitely recommend trying it. More than 1,500 top doctors recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. You can grow thicker, healthier and hair and support the show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code 
Mary, that's right, Mary, to save $15 off your first month's subscription. Uh, this is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers. Unfortunately, sorry about that, uh, Australia. But it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, and use promo code Mary. And today's show is also brought to you by QB. Think about how many hours we spend sitting on our desks or on the couch watching TV. What if we could turn those otherwise inactive times into opportunities to burn calories? That's exactly what I'm doing, thanks to Cubi. That's C-U-B-I-I. It's a compact elliptical unit that fits easily under the desk so that I can be pedaling my feet while I'm sitting here at my computer. In fact, I'm doing it right now while I'm recording this commercial. QB is whisper quiet. It's super easy on your joints. It's low impact. And a recent clinical study confirms it helps burn 84% more energy than just sitting. <laughs> that makes sense. We all say I'd work out more if I only had time. Well, QB makes it easy to burn calories and stay active anytime and virtually anywhere. In fact, I set my QB up in front of the couch to burn some calories while I'm watching TV and the news. And I also got one for my mom. She loves it. QB's perfect solution for anyone who might be housebound. Uh, or otherwise needs something to help improve circulation and keep active, which she does. So if you have a parent or loved one who has limited mobility and needs a way to stay healthy, QB would be the perfect gift this holiday for them. I love my QB. I know you will too. Take advantage of QB's 30-day risk-free in-home trial. Turn your least active times into your most productive opportunities to stay healthy with QB. Visit QB.com slash MSW to find the QB elliptical model that's right for you. That's QB, C-U-B-I-I dot com slash MSW. You'll be glad you did. Everybody, welcome back to episode two of the MSW Book Club series covering Here, Right Matters by Alexander Vindman. We're now on page 51, chapter four, called Right Where I Want to Be. And this chapter opens in January 2000. Alex says, I'm just reading right here from it. It's January 2000. I'm arriving in South Korea, a second lieutenant assigned to the 1st Battalion, 506th Infantry Regiment, a regiment and battalion with an impressive record in World War II and Vietnam. Much will soon change in the U.S. military presence around the world. In 2000, however, this regiment stationed near the historically tense border with our adversary North Korea was the most forward-deployed U.S. unit in the world. So I'm right where I want to be. That's how it opens up. So he's a second lieutenant, and he has an actual goal at this time, which is to become a good platoon leader. He's finally got some direction here. And, and everything that he would learn about serving his country and from serving his country started there in Korea. Alex was still only planning on doing one tour of duty and then getting out, and he was even thinking about medical school after. But the constant new challenges presented by the military were very exciting for Alex, and, and the latest uh, was the challenges that leadership presented. So being a ROTC grad, ROTC, he did not have the discipline yet that the West Pointers or OCS grads had. And though he was fit and mentally tough, his judgment wasn't the best yet. He still needed to work on that. And he talks here about the hard times he faced in Korea with the harsh conditions, cold winters, the dangers of the DMZ, demilitarized zone. Uh, and he learned through it all that he actually had a knack for navigation, terrain, and seeing multiple ways in and out of situations. Um, very cool thing to learn about yourself. He would also learn how to be an independent thinker, be creative and imaginative, which is stuff that we normally don't think of when we think about military service. But it's true when he played a key role in a major training exercise. It was like a mock battle and his anti-tank platoon was to they were playing the bad guys and they were supporting a light infantry force facing an air assault. And his success in that exercise started something he would develop later in more challenging real world situations. 
And he says the key to victory is rarely brute force, but rather agility, creativity, and seeing the big picture. It takes imagination and vision. And he was beginning to learn the art of bringing those qualities together as a leader in the military. And while he learned a lot from the discipline provided by just being in the military, he said that the real discipline comes from within, bred by a desire to master difficult systems. And his job was very exciting. And this posed the greatest of challenges for him. And during his tenure in Korea, he would find an opportunity to push the boundaries of what was expected and take a calculated risk one time that would teach him a lot about what it meant to be a good leader. And I'm going to let you read this story because it's truly amazing. I encourage you to read it, uh, first of all, because it includes uh, Lieutenant General Russell Honore, who we know from uh, looking at... Uh, he was on a the commission the January 6th to look into to that. President Biden put him in charge of that. He uh, helped with uh, Katrina and the aftermath of Katrina. And um, a push forward by Alex to continue an exercise that would have typically been stopped kept going. He sold it. He sold it to, to Lieutenant General Honore. Uh, and it worked. And he was able to impress people. And I want you to read this story. It's really good. And Alex says, quote, if you take the risk of saying what's on your mind, try new ideas and back up those ideas with performance, your superior officers will listen. They'll even encourage you. If they don't, there's a problem in them and in the system. And that's a lesson in leadership. And there's a little foreshadowing, isn't it? The next lesson Alex talks about is practice, 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 practice. During his testimony, many commented on his combat infantryman badge, but he also had an expert uh, infantry badge, which means you've mastered a wide range of skills, and to earn it, you only get two chances at each skill to pass each skill test. And Alex got them all on his first try, except for one, which was grenade throwing. If you don't have the knack, he says, you have to practice. And early in his life, he tended to only do what he was good at and ignored things that were harder for him. I can relate to that. So he spent hours practicing lobbing grenades into bunkers and eventually earned that badge. Now, during that time period, he talks about another lesson he learned from what he calls perhaps the most embarrassing incident during his deployment. During a recon exercise in a Humvee over rough terrain, Alex told the driver, who was kind of a problem kid, to watch his speed and take care. And the guy said, I got this. And Alex believed him, and that's the mistake. He ended up rolling the Humvee into a muddy rice field, and it took tons of hours and manpower and multiple vehicles to rescue the Humvee and get it out of there. If this were actually in a, a wartime exercise, the Humvee would have been lost. Alex took a reputational hit for that, uh, and his fellow officers would later call it Operation Cabbage Patch. And what he learned was the old adage trust, but verify. We hear this all the time in the military and the government, just because someone assures you they can do something or that they have done something. It doesn't always mean that they can, or they have. And the failure of operation cabbage patch was a lesson that would come in handy in several future endeavors. And by early 2001, Alex was a solid platoon leader. And because he'd never been a solid anything before he, uh, he felt like he was onto something. <laughs> he discovered his passion, which was military leadership and back stateside he came back and earned his ranger tab. He failed it once before um, when he made a bad judgment call of trying to take the test with a broken ankle. Now, this chapter finishes up with the story of how his life changed forever when he met Rachel Cartmill. He was at Fort Lewis after Korea doing a decidedly far more boring job of resourcing training exercises. The highlight of working there, though, he said, was sharing an office with the irrepressible Captain Bill Jacobson. 
about the same age as Alex with four kids and who would be a comrade in arms in Iraq. And he says, tragically, he would die in the Baghdad Christmas bombing in 2004 and his kids would grow up without his warmth, energy and positivity. But after graduating ranger school, Alex wanted to pick up his folks in New York, drive across country and do this road trip west on his way to Fort Lewis. Uh, And there in New York, the weekend before they all left, before they all piled in the car to drive across the country, he was set up on a blind date. He doesn't say by who, but she was a flight attendant based in New York City, and he picked her up at an airport hotel where she was staying. And he says for him, it was love at first sight. And they drove to Manhattan and headed to a Middle Eastern restaurant where she ordered in Arabic, which was really impressive to Alex. After dinner, they walked around the village and they learned they had very different backgrounds. Her family lived in Oklahoma since the 1800s, and she lived there for 24 years. So while he was a Russian Jew with city kid upbringing, moving all around, uh, she was a child of Friday night football, church on Sunday, big Thanksgiving dinners, Fourth of July parades. But that night, they also learned they shared the same tenet that people are more alike than they are different. And this is so sweet. I'm, I'm just going to read uh, from uh, page 66. One second here. Let me, because I can't say it better than he did. Quote, maybe I was head over heels that evening, or my head was in the clouds, or both. Because when I was driving Rachel back to her hotel, she looked around and said, weren't we just at this intersection? Are we going in circles? And he says, I'm generally very good at navigation, remember? (laughs) And yet I'd gotten lost. So to distract her, I leaned over and kissed her. Neither of us was upset that the 20 mile return journey took two and a half hours. I dropped her off knowing I had just met a woman full of Midwestern charm mixed with drive, intelligence, wit, and a sense of adventure. In army terms, Rachel was a badass. So cool. Alex and his family then drove to San Francisco cross country. A month later, Rachel flew out to see him for a weekend. Soon she was staying for weeks at a time. And meanwhile, he was getting ready for deployment to Iraq. And he wanted to get married, but Alex didn't want to do so before he deployed. He was really worried about widowing um, Rachel. And he says, quote, I wouldn't formally propose until after I came home from Iraq. And even then things wouldn't go exactly as planned. But first I went into combat. And that's where this chapter ends, and that's where we will leave off. I will be back next week for episode three with chapters five and six, starting on page 69 with The Moral Compass. So thanks again to our patrons who make this series possible, and thanks to everyone for listening. Until next week, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.